Welcome to the Grace Church Podcast. We are a small church located in West Lafayette, Indiana. This podcast is our recorded Sunday morning teachings. Join us as we learn to love, grow, and share what God has given us. In with children, if you know what I mean. It's just a disaster. And then house church is coming, and we're like, uh-oh, here comes house church. My dad's coming over. Greg and Otto and OJ, Sarah and Christine, all these very judgmental people are coming. And they're going to look at my life and go, what a slob. And I don't want that in my life. I need to clean up. Well, that's one motivation, right? I don't want to look and be embarrassed by how ugly and nasty my house is. The other motivation is that I love you guys. I don't want to inflict my disaster on you. I want you guys to come into my home, feel welcome. I mean, my home's not awesome, but it's nice enough, right? You come in, I want there to be food. I want there to be some refreshments, the toys picked up, no dirty diapers on the floor. I want you to come into my home and feel like this is somewhere I want to be. I want to be welcomed here. And I thought about that today as we were talking about 2 Peter chapter 3, where it talks about the coming of the Lord and being ready, being prepared. We're waiting for that day when Jesus himself is coming back. And how do we want our homes to be in relation to him? We might look at it and think, in fear, Jesus is going to come and judge what I have going on. I don't know if that's, I think for some people in this world, that should be a motivation for their lives. But for a lot of us, we think the one I love and delight in the most is coming. I want to make him feel as welcome as possible. I want him to look at what is going on in my life and go, this is good. I like this because I love him. We're going to talk through some of these things, continue on in 2 Peter here. But before we do, why don't we just bow our heads in prayer, ask the Lord to be working in our hearts. There's so many things in our world, in our life, that I know even walking in today, my mind during worship was scattered on all the things that I could easily be worried about. So why don't we just take a minute here and just pray and ask the Lord to hold those things for us for a moment that we can come, rest, and listen to his voice. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are with us. You say you will never leave us or forsake us. God, that you live in the hearts of those who believe through your spirit. God, and that you want to make your home in our hearts. But thank you that someday it's not going to be just this spiritual aspect inside of us. Someday you're coming again in glory. You are going to make a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God, not just as a short-term thing, but forever and ever, we will be with you, delighting in you and knowing you, Lord, and that is our hope. And we are so thankful that that is our future as those who believe in you. But God, just today, I just pray that as we look through your word, as we study these short six verses here from Second Peter, Lord, we just ask that you would be showing us and speaking to us in our hearts and in our minds what you want us to know. God, what is it that you want to impact us in? I know that you have your word, and you can have a different message for every one of us today. Just help us to understand your heart and your will. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's the last chapter. I'm sorry, 2 Peter. Ha 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 ha. Andrew said he was going to do that last week when he taught, and he did it almost instantly. I needed to get it out of the way too. I leaned over to my wife and said, we should make a tally mark every time Andrew says 1 Peter. And she's like, Tom, love keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, 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 that's from 1 Corinthians. Anyway, so here's where we are in our study of 2 Peter. I think I've got my slide up here. There's three chapters. The first one, Peter is instructing the saints spread across Asia Minor and really all across the ancient world, instructing them and reminding them of the truth. It seemed like Peter knew soon he would be um, murdered and taken to be with the Lord. He knew the time of his death was coming, and so he wrote this letter to remind them of some truths the truth of the gospel, that they were saved by Jesus, and the truth that we get to walk and grow in Christ, and that is what God is calling us to. That's the natural course of what a Christian should be, is becoming more like Jesus. And then he reminds them that it is steadfast and firm, this truth we hold on to. And that brings us to the second chapter where he begins to warn them that there will be those who twist the truth false prophets and false teachers who are going to come in and tell you, don't worry about all that living for Jesus stuff. You should live for yourself now. You should try to make yourself as happy as possible. You should live a sensual life, gratifying your own desires, living the way you want to live. That's what's important. And he counters them and says, these people, they're leading people astray. They don't understand that someday God is going to judge this world, and the way they are living is going to not lead to them being with the Lord. That there's a judgment for them, that they are going to be in big trouble. And so then comes to chapter 3, which we started last week, where Peter encourages them to wait patiently for Jesus to come back, to be realizing there is a reality, this world will not last forever, Someday he's going to come again, and that is what we are looking forward to. Last week, one of the things Andrew was talking about were scoffers who said, where is Jesus? He's not coming back. He said he's coming back. He's never coming back. Things have been going on this way forever, and they're just going to continue on forever. And Peter rebukes that thought and says, they don't understand that Jesus is going to come to judge the world. And we pick it up there. So let's read our verses for today. We've got six verses, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. By the way, just, just for the continuing saga of Fred blaming other people for things, okay? Um, he only gave me three verses today, and he gave himself like 10 verses next week. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So I took half of his verses. So I stole them because I liked them. Anyways, here's our six verses for today, 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm reading out of the ESV. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is, a thousand, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. This is some powerful stuff here, and it's really interesting stuff. We know it's been over 2,000 years that Jesus was born. He lived, he died, he rose again, and one of the things he said is, I am coming again someday. I'm going to come it's like the sky is going to be split open. I'm going to be coming on the clouds. I'm going to set up my kingdom. I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, and I will be the king amidst my people. It speaks a lot about that in Matthew. I think it's chapters 24 and 25, and we taught on that a few years ago. But that was over 2,000 years ago, or getting close to it. And we can think, well, where is he? It's been a long time since Jesus came. And what's really interesting about that is like, okay, Jesus is going to come. What he says he's going to do is take care of sin and unrighteousness. He's going to judge all people that have ever stood on the earth. Those who can stand in righteousness before him will be brought into his eternal kingdom. Those who are unrighteous before him will be taken to a place of weeping, gnashing of teeth. And that's what he's going to do. And we can look at that as someone who feels like we have Jesus' righteousness, right? And go, why is it taking him so long to get here? This world is filled with death and sorrow and pain. Why doesn't he come back? Why doesn't he take us with him and make it all right? I am really anxious for this to come. And I don't know about you guys, but that's where I find myself, and I found myself in my life. So let's, let's reread some of our verses here. The first thing we need to think about here as we think about Jesus coming again and what that means for us is we need to understand the patience of the Lord. Here's the verse again. Let's reread it. Peter telling them and responding to those who say things are just going to be the same forever and ever, so we should just live however we want. He tells them this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What promise is he talking about? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. We're pretty sure this promise is the promise of his second coming. That he, when he rose, he died, he came to life, he spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them and explaining to them everything that he needed to. Then he ascended to heaven and basically said, I'll be back. That was a horrible Terminator quote, but you guys can put that one in your pocket for later, you know. Um, what was his promise? I will come again. I will take you with me. I will resurrect all people on this earth someday to stand before me. 
That's what he promised us. In our society, that is not something that crosses people's mind. If you talk to your average student on campus and ask them what happens when you die, I don't know if it's a majority at this point, but it's getting close. They think nothing. I die and nothing happens. There's nothing after death. We live, we live for here, we live for this world. There is no God. And when I die, I just go and become one with the cosmic nothingness and my existence ceases to be. And they find comfort in that idea that there is nothing. Because if there's nothing, then you can live however you want. And it's echoing in our society today the same thing the people in Peter's day were saying. It doesn't matter how you live. Live however you want. Peter is reminding them of Jesus' promise. He will come again. He will. You can bank on it. And when he comes, he is coming to judge the earth, is what it tells us throughout all of Scripture. In fact, the person who talks the most about hell and judgment in all of the Bible is Jesus himself. He's trying to help us understand there is a reality coming. That when you die, you will stand before God. It also tells us that each one of us will give an account for how we've lived. I don't know how you feel about that. Are you excited to tell Jesus how you lived? Or does that make you want to shrink back in fear? To be afraid and go, ah, I don't really want him, the king of the universe, to stand over me and see everything I've ever done. The beautiful thing is, just like the songs we are singing today, every one of the songs we sang was speaking about how Jesus himself, the one who will judge all of mankind, stood over us and said, they can't do it. They cannot be righteous enough on their own. They're going to fail, and every one of them deserves to be separated from me. Yet in his great love, in his great compassion and mercy, he looked at us and said, I do not desire that to happen. I don't wish that that would happen. I want them to be with me. So, we talk about this every week. We know the story, but the reality is that Jesus himself came into your sin, into the things you don't want him to see. He says, I'll take all of it. Give me your sin. Give me your unrighteousness. Give me your weakness. The things that prevent you from following the way God says, I want it and I'll trade you my own life. My own righteousness before God can be yours. He says, all I ask is that you repent and believe. I want you to turn away from doing it your own way, thinking your own thoughts. I want you to believe what I have said, that I am king, I am in charge, and that I have died in your place for your sins. And everyone who believes that, the Bible says, has the very righteousness of Christ. And that on that judgment day, though nobody deserves to stand before him and say, I'm pretty good, all of us deserve to go to hell, to be separated from him for eternity, yet, because of his mercy, we can stand before him on that judgment and be accepted. That is what Jesus came to do for us. And when he comes again, he will accept us into his kingdom. But those who don't know it will be separated from him. 
brings us to the patience of the Lord. This verse is really interesting. I've stood in my life, I remember when I was a teenager reading the Bible and getting to Revelation, where it says, Jesus is coming soon. Have you guys read that part before? I know a lot of us have. Jesus is coming soon. That was written 2,000 years ago. And I remember in my heart thinking, Jesus is a liar. Because that is not soon. Even on the cosmic scale of how long earth exists, 2,000 years is not soon. Right? I remember in my heart getting angry at God, and it causes me to distrust what he's saying and go, if he's not being honest about that, what else is he lying about? But I remember praying about that one day and being, God, I don't really know that I can trust you. And I remember this verse came to mind. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years is as one day. That to God, when he looks at what is going on on our human scale, it's just like a breeze. It's just like a snap of his fingers. 2,000 years is nothing to a God who is not bound by time. That he is waiting patiently. He has not abandoned us. He is waiting patiently to come. And he's not being slow about it because he has a purpose in his waiting. What is that purpose? It's the end of the verse. He is waiting because he wishes that no one should perish. That everyone who's on this planet right now, everyone who has existed, everyone that will exist, his wish is that they would not perish and be separated from him. Now, if you're like me, you look at that word wish, and you're like, that is a weird word to use about God. Think about like, uh, my son had a birthday last month, and he made a wish and blew out his candles. I don't know what he wished for, but it was probably something ridiculous like more Legos, you know? Like, oh, I really want more Legos. But he has no control on how many Legos, Legos he gets. He has no income, right? He is at my whims, his wishes. He has no power, right? Is that what we're saying about God? That God, he wishes for things, but they're beyond his grasp to attain. No, that's not what we believe about God. Later this semester, we're going to talk about who God is in more detail. We're going to talk about his character. And one of those things is that he is almighty, all-powerful, that there is nothing beyond his power and grasp. And so when it says God wishes, he wishes for something, he has power, if he were to want to, to make it happen, why doesn't he? Why does it seem like he promises that some people will not be with him in eternity? The reality, it's because one of God's primary motivations is love, but it is not his only motivation. He has other things he is balancing as he looks on the world and desires for people to be saved. He needs to balance his justice, his desire to make sure that everyone, every wrong, has a payment for it. He also balances his desire to have a shared love, a relationship with us. He could just make everyone be saved, but so many people in this world do not want him. They do not want to be saved. They maybe don't know it, but even in their hearts, many reject it. They say, I'd rather live my way. 
God wants to give every one of those people who has not heard and who has rejected him every opportunity to come to him, to repent and be saved. I think about it like the story of the prodigal son. The story of the rich dad had two sons. One of them wanted nothing to do with his father. All he cared about was getting the money and the riches. He took his inheritance and left, just left his family, spent all of his money and found himself destitute, living in a foreign land. But then when he realized, you know, this is stupid. I should go back to my dad who has money. Maybe I could be hired as his servant. It'd be better than being here. He comes back, and what does it say? That his father was waiting for him and ran out to him. That this dad wanted his son to be with him and waited, gave him every opportunity to come home. That's who our Jesus is. Jesus is waiting because he wants every single person on this campus, in this community, every one of our relatives who does not know him, to turn away from their sins and join in a relationship with him. That's so beautiful. Our God is patient to come because he loves those who don't know him. Let's take a look at this next verse. Next thing that he talks about here is helps, helping the saints understand the day of the Lord. This is an interesting phrase, the day of the Lord. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He's helping them understand in the end, when he comes again, it's not going to be a small thing. That this coming of God, the promise, is going to come like a thief. We won't know when it's coming. When I do house church, I know when you guys are coming in general. Some of you like to show up early and surprise us, but you know, it's fine. You can help us clean up. When Jesus comes again, he is not going to give us any more warning than what we already have. He has told us, I'm coming, and you're going to be surprised when I show up. But when that happens, it'll be done. There will not be second chances. Everything done on this earth, I love this language. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. I don't know all of what that means exactly, scientifically. I know Peter was no scientist. He was not writing from a scientific understanding of how the universe worked. I know the Holy Spirit understood when it inspired him. What I do know is when Peter is writing here, he is referencing a Jewish concept, the day of the Lord. That phrase is found through many of the prophets of the Old Testament. It's used several different times in the New Testament. Let's take a look at one of those Old Testament places. This is found in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Joel, Zephaniah, many others. Here's one from Isaiah 13, speaking of this phrase, the day of the Lord, this time of judgment. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. 
The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The day of the Lord, when it comes, it is going to be God against the proud. And those who stand opposed to God, God comes and shows them you were wrong. Throughout the Old Testament, it's used a lot to talk about God's enemies, the ones who are fighting against God's people, Israel, like Babylon. I think this particular instance is talking about God's judgment of the Babylonians. Elsewhere, it's used to talk about God's judgment of his own people for their sins, that God is going to come and it's going to be bad. He is going to judge the sinners. That happens when the Babylonians and Syrians take Israel away into captivity, that they see everything they thought they were standing on removed. And God did it to expose unrighteousness and wickedness and show that this is not okay. That God cannot, in his heart, he doesn't want to tolerate sin, right? He doesn't like injustice. He wants to show people, don't live this way. It is bad. It will hurt others. And at some point, God's wrath and his anger have to be brought in to bring justice. Here we are in 2 Peter. Peter's using that same phrase to speak about God's, Jesus' coming again. Let's go back to our 2 Peter verse here. That when he comes, it's not going to be God just judging some people on earth. That whatever happens is going to be worldwide, catastrophic, and that everything is going to be stripped away. He uses the language of fire. This is throughout the New Testament, this idea of fire exposing and purifying. Peter, or Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 3 when he talks about our works are going to be tested as though by fire, and the worthless is going to burn up, and the precious is going to remain. And Peter's using a similar idea here, is that he says, the heavens and the heavenly bodies will be burn up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That you guys will all, everything you've ever done and are doing, it will be exposed right before God, no more hiding out in the open. Now, I, quick aside, I'm not going to get deep into what happens to our physical earth, right? There's some different theories about what this is talking about in the end times when Jesus comes. Some people think that this is more metaphorical. God is going to cleanse earth's systems. The wickedness and the unrighteousness will be burned away. It's more of a spiritual unveiling. Others would say this is a literal fire of the cosmos where God is going to destroy earth, heaven, the atmosphere. Everything's going to burn away. And that someday God's going to create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. I lean toward that one, scripturally, that God's going to destroy this earth and build a new one. Others disagree. However, you guys can study that on your own. What's important for us today is this idea that what exists now, the things we build now, the things that we are trying to achieve, to accomplish, someday all of those great and mighty things, our monuments and our memorials, our churches, our buildings, our universities, every book that's ever written will be burned. 
and that all that's going to be left is how did we stand before God while we were here on earth? Did we do it from a right place or for a wrong place? Complete exposure. But let's look at why God is doing that and why was Peter writing this, right? It's nice to know that, but like, we don't know what it's going to be. Why is he even telling us? Why doesn't he just show up and surprise us, right? You know, he tells us to be ready throughout scripture. Be ready for this day. How can we be ready? What is it that Peter is trying to instruct us in? What does the Holy Spirit want us to know? What's the purpose of the Lord teaching us this? Let's take a look. It's the end here. The purpose of knowing this is this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all the physical things around us will not matter in the long run. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Since everything's going to be burned up and we're all going to stand before God's judgment seat someday, shouldn't that instruct us in how we should be living our lives now? If we do not know Jesus, if we have not had our sins forgiven, that day should terrify us. We should be afraid, not because God is wrathful, but because of our own sin requires judgment. And Jesus says, you don't have to stand before my wrath someday. You can be forgiven. You can accept my free gift. It's free. It's offered. You can accept it. And you can be saved. But then those of us who have done that, we also get to walk in what's right. It says that those of us who know Christ, our deeds will be judged and there is a reward for the good that we do. When we do what God asks us to do, there is good. There's a reward there. And that if we know this world's not going to last, we ought to live for what will. We should live for what lasts. We should be storing up our treasures in heaven, not here on earth. We should be living a life of holiness and godliness. So here's a question. Do you guys know what holiness and godliness means? Can you guys tell me the difference between holiness and and godliness? I am, I'm just going to throw it out there. Does anyone want to take a stab at the difference between holiness and godliness? This is not something we always talk about. Oh, cool. Andrew's been volunteered. You want to give us just your ballpark difference between holiness and godliness? These are not words that our society uses a whole lot. That's pretty good. Yeah. Holiness is being set apart and separate from common things. Godliness is being like God. When you say it like that, it doesn't seem so complicated. As you dig into the words here that Peter used in his writing, the word holiness there is actually not the same word as holiness used throughout Scripture. It actually is holy conduct or holy behavior. Speaking specifically about the way we live, what we do that it should not be common like the rest of society around us, drinking and gambling and sex and trouble and pleasuring ourselves, feeding our flesh, laziness. Those things is not 
what God has called us to as his children. He says, live a life of holiness, of love, of peace, of patience, kindness, generosity, acting the way we should as believers. I feel like holiness is a lot about avoiding what is not good in this world, saying, I am different. I am not the same as everybody else. Living my life, the other people go, you're kind of different. Yes, I am. I am different because I'm living for something different. Godliness then, godliness specifically talks about having a Godward attitude and a character that is well-pleasing to him. Holiness is about what we're not. We are not like this world. Godliness is about what we are. We are living as God wants us to. We are not God. But in some ways, we're called to be like God, to live in the image of God. Peter's telling them, if you know this world is going to end, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in our lifetime, yet still knowing it will end, we ought to live with the purpose of living in a way that's pleasing to God. This doesn't save us, but it is pleasing to our Savior. And we ought to make that a high priority if we really know him and we really love him. We should want to live for him. Maybe you guys can think about it this way, right? If you come over to my house for house church this week and my house is a complete mess, you're like, oh, okay, Tom, that's kind of a mess, but we still, that's okay. It's not a big deal. We'll forgive you. But if you come over to my house and I'm drunk, my wife's got two black eyes, my kids are in the corner cowering in fear, that's probably not okay, right? You may be like, dude, Tom, what? You need to stop that. That's not okay. You might even very gently remove my wife and kids from my presence because it is not safe. Or even call the police and be like, hey, look, police, you need to do something about this guy, right? Some of us live our lives with things like that that we keep hidden. We don't show other people our bad behavior. We don't want other people to know that we really aren't as godly and holy as what we should be. And Peter is helping us understand someday everything we hide, all the secrets we have, are going to be put before God, and they're going to be exposed. And I think he's trying to help them say, let's work on that now. Let's not hide these things. Let's not live for our flesh now. Let's bring them out into the open so that God can help us walk in what's right. And here is the end of this verse. I feel like this verse is really encouraging at the end here. That we, according to his promise, are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That someday, he's going to set up a new system, a new heaven, a new earth. We're going to be there with righteousness itself, Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to live there, and what's going to exist there is what is right. That every one of us who will be in heaven will look around and understand, wow, this is right. This is good. This is satisfying to my soul. But more than that, this is in relationship to God, that God is going to be elevated. And we're going to see how right God always has been. And we who know Jesus 
That should be what we long for, is to be with God and see him as he is. Because we know in his great patience, he waited to save us, to help us come to know him. And then he calls us, come walk with me, because someday you will be with me in righteousness, and I'd like you to start seeing it now. Don't hide your sin. Bring it to the light and be changed. The last little bit here I wanted to share before we go is just a one phrase that's really interesting in verse 12. It says this, since all these things will be dissolved, I'll go back one. There you go, thank you. Um, we ought to live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day of God is when Jesus will return and set everything right. And he says, we as Christians, we wait in a godly way and in a holy way. But then there's that phrase, we hasten his coming. We are waiting for him coming, and we are hastening the day that he comes. What does that mean? You can look at that and say, wait a minute. Does that mean what I do today can bring Jesus back quicker? Is the way I live my life now going to help Jesus come again and bring me to be right with him again someday? When you dig into that, the hastening, it talks about waiting with such anticipation so as to urge someone else into action. So when my son is waiting for Christmas Day and the gifts I'm going to give him with such anticipation that I'm like, fine, just have the gifts now. That's kind of hastening the day of the Lord, right? Hastening the day of Christmas. Jesus, I believe, has a desire to come back quickly. And yet his patience is waiting for those who are perishing to come to repentance. How could we hasten the day of the Lord? Is to, one, be quick to repent ourselves. Turn away from evil. That's his desire is for people to repent and be changed. Two, is for us to help people of this world, those who are perishing, to see the wonder of knowing Christ, to share the gift of the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners, that those who believe in him have eternal life, that they don't have to perish. They could be with him forever, that we can go and help others see that. I don't know what the end mark is. At what point is Jesus going to be done waiting He's like, well, that's enough. I've got enough people. It's time to come now. I'm not sure when that's going to be or how that's going to work. Someday it will happen. But it says we can work with him. We can help him. We can hasten that day as we live our lives for what he's up to. So why don't we just close out here, our conclusion here. 2 Peter 3.11 says this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And I'd like to leave that with you guys today. I'd like you guys to chew on that. I'd encourage you to make a mark, make a phone note, sometime today or tomorrow. Take some time to pray, to slow down with Jesus, and ask him this question for your life. Okay, Jesus. Everything's going to be stripped away. 
what areas of my life do you want me to be growing in holiness and godliness? What are the things that I am tolerating that you would prefer I didn't? What are the areas of my life that I could be walking away that is just pleasing to you, to be with you more? Where are these areas I can walk a life of holiness and godliness? Not necessarily as this judgment that's coming, but more so from the angle of Jesus is coming again, I'm going to be with him. Let's start working on these things now. Why don't I pray and then I have a quick announcement. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, that you are patient. God, I know that if you had come 40 years ago, God, I would not have been here. I would not have known you. God, I wouldn't get to enjoy the glory of being in heaven with you someday. God, but I'm glad that you waited. I'm glad that I was born. I am glad that even in my sin, you showed mercy and you drew me in. You offered me your gift of life, God, and you've, I've accepted that, and I know when I die, I get to be with you, and I hope for that. God, I'm thankful, too, that you're waiting for others. You have so many more people that you desire to be in heaven with you for eternity. Lord, and I just pray that you be helping us as a church to be patient, to wait for you, and recognize that we can live in a way that is pleasing to you today. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more about Grace Church, visit our website, wlgrace.org. See you next week.